All right. Well, as you know, hopefully, we have been going through the book of Colossians, and uh, we were going at a pretty good pace, and then we hit chapter 3. And God has simply had some amazing things, I think, to pull out from chapter 3, and there's a lot of things in here that God has been teaching me, and I hope teaching you as well. I hope they're resonating with you. I know they're resonating with some of you as you've kind of talked to me about what these verses have meant for you, Uh, and I make no apologies for how slow we're going because the Lord has things to say, and we're just going to wait and and listen to what He has for us. And so that's why we're on week three of chapter three, and we're... we would just be starting in verse 9, so uh, I'm happy with that. I'm, I'm very excited for what God has had in that. And uh, uh, I, Jack and I spent some time in Morgantown, West Virginia this week. Um, we went down for someone's graduation party, and so I got to talk with like a lot of uh, my church people from down there and some of the other pastors from down there, and then we were up into... Uh, Pennsylvania, yeah, up into uh, where I grew up uh, at my 20-year high school reunion um, last night and just conversing with some people. And it's amazing how when God is in something, how often it comes up in conversation with both believers and non-believers. So it was really cool having some great conversations with stuff that God's kind of mulling around in my mind. And so I just reiterate uh, what is truth that many times, most of the time when I'm preaching on a Sunday morning, you're simply getting to hear a little bit of the overflow of what God has been teaching me in something. So What I want to do is I want to catch us up uh, in verses 1 to 8, and then we're going to pick up in verse 9 of Colossians chapter 3. I teach from the New Living Translation, but if you want to follow along on your own, you're obviously more than welcome to do that, or you can follow along on the screen as well. But starting in verse 1, it says, Since you have been raised to new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven, where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. Think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. For you died to this life, and your real life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, is revealed to the whole world, you will share in all His glory. So put to death the sinful earthly things lurking within you. Have nothing to do with sexual immorality, impurity, lust, and evil desires. Don't be greedy, for a greedy person is an idolater, worshiping the things of this world. Because of these sins, the anger of God is coming. You used to do these things when your life was still part of this world, but now is the time to get rid of anger, rage, malicious behavior, slander, and dirty language. Anybody else use the word lurking since we started talking about it? I don't know, my wife and I have had a few lurking jokes about things that lurk. Um, I don't know, it's a fun word to say. Uh, but it really, for me, it, it really resonated uh, with how some of those things just kind of sit in our heart and our mind, and they just wait for that opportunity to ambush us. But uh, I don't know if you picked up on this. Hopefully, uh, I strongly encourage you, as we're doing a series like this, that you would just take a few moments. It takes you less than five minutes to read through the chapter, um, but do that every day. Um, So be reading Colossians chapter 3 every day um, as we're doing Colossians chapter 3, and you'll start to pick up on certain things. If you didn't notice, uh, there are uh, those two lists. They're both lists of five, and then there's another list of five that uh, I'm, I'm hoping we're going to get to today. Um, but there are three lists of five in this chapter, and um, the 
first two are te- is a list of ten sinful behaviors that Paul is telling us to have nothing to do with, to put to death the sinful things that are lurking within us. And so he's encouraging us not just to put things to rest, not just to put them off for a season, but to truly put them to death, which means, uh, as we have discussed, that we're not just making declarations that, well, I'm going to stop doing that this time. I'm going to stop doing that for now. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make this declaration again for the 432nd time that I'm going to stop doing this sinful behavior, but we actually actively go after it. And we've talked about um, tracing it back to the roots of where it's getting fed from and killing it there, uh, and then it will truly and, and really die. But after these lists of ten sinful behaviors, Paul adds one more to the list before he transitions to the qualities of the new nature. And so we're going to pick it up in verse 9. If you have your copy of God's Word, follow along with us. He says, don't lie to each other, for you have stripped off your old sinful nature and all of its wicked deeds. So I think to a degree, uh, Paul is speaking to uh, the something that might not be true for everyone. Anybody here feel like in their life they have completely stripped off their old sinful nature and all of its wicked deeds, they never come back anymore, right? Um, what Paul isn't saying is, well, you're all perfect, so act like it. Um, that's not true for any of us. Uh, if you feel like you're perfect, you have uh, unfortunately found yourself in the wrong church. Uh, we don't accept any perfect people here, so um, you've definitely found the wrong spot. Uh, None of us are perfect. We've all messed up. But that doesn't mean that the work that God did when we died to our old nature, that that old nature did die. It doesn't mean that we don't sometimes go back. We don't sometimes struggle with the things that we did. But it was put to death. And so what Paul is now saying um, is, again, to fully appreciate what he's saying, we need to remember what has come before this, what Paul has been talking about, to understand his train of thought. The last few verses have been talking about putting to death the sinful, earthly things lurking within us. Uh, Paul just encouraged his readers to get rid of anger, rage, malicious behavior, slander, dirty language. We talked about what those were like last week and how that, those things progress uh, and build off of each other. And now we're told not to lie to each other. Now, apart from the obvious conclusion you can draw that, that you know, outright lies are wrong, um, I think most of us understand that, why do you think Paul might be including this here? And if you're not asking yourselves these questions, I encourage you to do so. As you read through the chapters each week and as you're processing this information, ask, ask questions. Ask some critical questions of what you're reading. And so for me, I, I read this and I think, why is Paul including that here? Why couldn't he have just thrown lying in with one of the first set of five or the second set of five? Why is it separate here? Maybe because our desire to hide the sinful earthly things lurking within us for appearance's sake. But that's not true of anybody in church, right? That's never happened. That never happens in church. We don't lie to each other and make it seem like our life is better and like our marriages are better and like everything's perfect and we put on the smiles and we tell our kids not to act like animals in church and all those wonderful things, right? We're all very comfortable showing our messiness to our church family. I wish that was true, because it should be true. If, this, if there's one place that you can be a hot mess, it should be church. Like, that's the one place you can come and be like, man, 
I am messy, and I just don't have my life together. Things are a wreck. Can you just sit with me, talk with me, pray for me, be there for me? But for some reason, our tendency is to do the opposite, to hide things for appearance's sake. We know there are sexual sins lurking in our hearts. We know there is unforgiveness lurking in our hearts. We hear about it every communion Sunday. Uh, the pastor talks about how we should have accounts right, and that person keeps coming to our mind, and we keep shoving it down and acting like it's not there. But we lie to each other, and we act like everything is good. Everything's good, brother. How are you, brother? I'm good. If we could learn to be transparent with one another and honest about the sinful, earthly things lurking within us. One of the things is, well, we could live Christian lives free of the shame and the anxiety the enemy tries to keep us bound in. One of the things that frustrates me about the church is there are, at any given time, many people in our church family, those sitting here among us, who are suffering secretly through their sinful, earthly things because they don't feel like they'd be accepted for the sinful earthly things lurking within them. If they were honest about it, if they came clean to the, to the men or the women around them, uh, to their, their group of people uh, in the church family, they just don't know how people would respond. Well, let me tell you, many times when that stuff comes out, if we're honest with one another, the only response is acceptance because it's like, oh my goodness, you're as broken as I am? Praise the Lord, let's talk about it. let's cry together, let's, let's work like, together on this stuff because you're not really, you might be broken different than I am, but you're certainly not more broken than I am because I've got this sinful earthly stuff lurking in me and you've got that stuff, so maybe we can work together and I can keep you accountable and we can talk to it, we can pray for each other and we can you know, really work on this and we can challenge each other and we can ask you know, tough questions to each other and we can really uh, pray for one another in a way that creates change. Instead, what happens, uh, what has happened in the past and can happen is we're honest about it and some of us who like to portray that we're better off than we really are, like, oh, well, well that's really messy. Oh, you need, you need to get right with Jesus. And we act somewhat judgmental as if we're not broken, as if we're not really messed up. And that's a sad state to be in, especially in the church family. This is, should be where people can come in and just blah with their messiness. And we should say, whew, man, that looks a lot like me. Maybe not today. Maybe that was last year. Maybe I uh, haven't really gotten there yet, but I probably will because we're all messed up and we're going to get there and we all have sinful earthly things lurking within us. And so why don't we just accept that brokenness in someone else? It doesn't mean we accept the sin and be like, oh, it's okay. Don't worry about it. But we say, okay, I get it. I see where you are. Let's talk. And we grab some coffee. Can we meet? Hey, can, you know, why don't we grab a couple guys or a couple girls together and we'll, we'll, we'll discuss this together and we'll, we'll work together on this. Let's, let's, let's help you through this season. Let's walk with you through the valley. That's what the church was always meant to be and meant to do, not to create this false sense of superiority or, or righteousness that we don't have and hold on to that while people secretly suffer and marriages suffer and, and, and men and women are just wrecked in, with, with shame because the enemy, every time they come to church, the enemy uses church as a place to magnify their shame instead of a place of acceptance and love that we should have. Many churches lack Christian community because people spend so much of their time hiding 
and trying to keep up appearances that there's no room for community. We're afraid if we really get close with a group of people, that ugly stuff is going to come out, that they're going to, they're going to find out that we're not nearly as, as righteous as we portray on a Sunday morning. They might find out that our kids are absolute animals outside of church, and church is the only place where they actually act somewhat normal. Um, like, you might find out that my kid, you know, breaks teeth off in our house by smacking his face off the floor. Uh, that's why he doesn't have a tooth. So if you were wondering, there's the story. Um, he smacked his face off the floor and lost his tooth. So uh, stuff's messy. You know, Jackie and I, our marriage is messy. We, and one of the things that uh, we talk to any couple that we do pre-marriage counseling with or marriage counseling with, we just tell them, like, listen, one of the things you're going to learn is kind of our messiness because we're going to be honest with, about it. We're not going to lie to you about what we fight about or what we argue about or the petty things that we, you know, we do together because it's not going to help you to make it seem like, oh, we have this perfect marriage and like because I'm a pastor, like Jesus just shines through me at all times and Jackie's just lucky to have me. Like I can't believe she's still with me half the time um, because I'm messy and I, you know, I, my anger gets the best of me at times and, and I get, you know, I have a thousand and one pet peeves so she has to deal with that. We're messy. We're all messy. And I found it to be so helpful and refreshing when we can sit with a couple and they can be like, well, here's a little bit of our messiness. And we're like, here's our messiness. And it's like, oh, wow, okay, we can actually talk about real stuff. We can actually be honest with it. And I tell them, like, listen, if you don't want to know how messy your pastor is, then don't come to me for pre-marriage counseling or marriage counseling because you're going to find out about it all. Uh, We're going to be honest. I'm going to answer any question you ask honestly. Because if you're wondering if you need to know it, then we're going to just tell you what it's like. We're going to be honest about that. And uh, there's so much power in transparency. And I believe in it very much so. The more transparent we are with our community, the more we are held accountable to put to death the sinful, earthly things that lurk within us. Paul's clear here. We've stripped off our old sinful nature and its wicked deeds. So let's just be honest with each other and live in transparent community because here's the thing with transparent community. When, when I'm honest with someone and say like, oh man, yeah, um, I get really irritable, whatever, when it gets hot and I tend to, you know, my anger tends to get the better of me when it's hot and humid, um, then it's kind of up to them and, and they have the opportunity now to be like, hey, it was really hot this week. How, how, like, did, did you fly off the handle? How was your anger this week with your wife? Because I'm transparent now, I have greater accountability amongst the people around me. And when, it's when we hide those things, who can, no one can keep us accountable because they don't even know what we're struggling with. They're not aware of the stuff the enemy tries to use to get us and trip us up. And so when the more we hide, the more we struggle. And so the more we struggle, then we feel the, the greater need to hide until hopefully we hit a moment of brokenness and we're just honest with the people around us. And I hope in our community of believers that we would accept that with open arms, that, that those of us that are here were broken. And we would be there for one another. And we would love each other through the ugliness. And I know that we do that. I've, I know I have stories I could tell right now of people who let their brokenness out and we love them through it. And that's awesome. Because when we're transparent, it makes it a lot more difficult to also go back to the sinful earthly things. When uh, someone I'm in close community with knows about something I'm tempted to go back to, 
it's a whole lot harder to go back because they're right there asking, hopefully, the right questions and uh, challenging me to not go back. As Paul continues, since we have stripped off the old nature, we are now to put on the new nature in verse 10. He says, put on your new nature and be renewed as you learn to know your creator and become like him. Notice the language of intentionality here. Putting on the new nature requires effort. It's not like you come to know Jesus and then you just kick back in the spiritual easy chair and be like, all right, Jesus, do everything you want to do. I'm going to sit here and do nothing and just allow you to do whatever you want to do. That's, that's not the Christian life. It's also not the exact opposite of that where it's like, well, I'm just going to work hard and I'm going to push and I'm going to push and I'm going to make everything happen. That's also not where it is. We're called to put in our effort to do everything we can and also to lean into the Holy Spirit because it requires our effort, it requires our intentionality, but it also requires our humility and our dependency on God for things to happen. Putting on our new nature will require effort. We are to be active in putting on our new nature. The act of putting on the new nature is really what this entire series is all about. That's why we call it new life, because uh, that's why there's a series on new life, because it doesn't just happen naturally and automatically. It requires us to constantly be intentional in our Christian life. We need to learn sometimes exactly what it looks like to live out the new life that we have in Christ. It's not just a get-out-of-hell-free card. It's not just a, an assurance that we don't have to spend eternity separated from God. There is so much to be had. And you can read the story of like the thieves on the cross next to Jesus and the one who, who accepts Jesus as Savior, uh, but he dies shortly after that. And praise the Lord that he goes to heaven because he believes that Jesus is the Messiah and, and he leans into that. But he missed out. Like that's, I look at that and think, man, he missed out on, on life lived for Jesus, a life lived out uh, l- serving God, living for him, putting to death these sinful earthly things and the struggle that we have. And sometimes, man, it can be a lot of work. But let's be honest, the things that we appreciate most, they require effort. The things that we get for free, the things that come easy, they're not nearly appreciated as much as the things that require a lot of effort. I mean, why, why do we congratulate a couple who says, you know, we've been married for 60 years. It's like, great, we can clap for that, but, you know, are you still happy? Do you have a passionate relationship? And if you do, then, man, that's something to be proud of. Why? Because that takes effort. If you've been married more than 10 minutes, you know it requires a lot of effort to make that thing work and to actually enjoy that after 10 minutes. Uh, of marriage. And so 60 years of it, you're like, man, you've really learned what it is to be humble. You've really learned what it is to sacrifice. And that's something to be celebrated. Why? Because it requires that effort. The renewing that this is talked about, that, that, that happens in the Christian's life, uh, we can't believe that it's just part of some checklist. 
that, or something that be, can be obtained through legalism. That, the, the Pharisees tried that. They tried to obtain righteousness by restricting themselves, by sacrificing uh, so much uh, of their comfort in all of these crazy ways. If you've never looked into how many laws there are just in the Word of God, and then on top of that, how many they added because apparently that wasn't enough. And so they, you know, they end up with hundreds of laws to follow. And guess what? It didn't work. They were no more righteous than they were when they started. When Jesus shows up on the scene, they kill him. That's how far from righteousness they are. They don't even recognize God when he shows up literally in front of them and is doing miracles that cannot be explained. They still don't see God. So I promise you, legalism won't work. You can draw all the lines you want, and you can, you can look at people and say, well, they can't be a Christian because they smoke cigarettes, or they can't be a Christian because they got tattoos. Listen, legalism doesn't work. You can draw all the lines you want. You can create whatever box you want and try to put people in it, but it just doesn't work. And we've talked a little bit about that bounded set versus centered set, and uh, when we try to fit inside the box of what we call Christianity, it's never going to work. That's not a renewing mindset. A renewing mindset means it's going to take effort and we're constantly going to have to uh, try to get closer to Jesus and allow him to strip off the things that are not of him and, and to clean things off and to continue this process. It requires us daily to be cutting off the lines of supply to the sinful earthly things while actively seeking to think, act, and be more like Jesus. And that cannot be accomplished without spending significant amounts of time with Jesus. It, there's just no other way. Have you ever seen the process that some actors will go through when they're portraying a real-life person in, in like a true story movie? Uh, they, even if the person has already passed away and, and they're making a movie about someone who's no longer alive, what do they do? They study that person relentlessly, watching videos, watching footage of that person, paying attention to their mannerisms, the way they walk, the way they talk, because their entire goal is to emulate the person that they are portraying as accurately as possible. I've watched some of those true, true story movies. And then if you ever see, like at the end, they kind of show you some footage of the original person that they were portraying. And sometimes it's like, wow, they nailed it. They got that so good. That was like creepy how good they portrayed that person. That's exactly what we claim to be doing with Jesus. And yet many of us, if they were to show like footage of Jesus after our movie, it'd be like, oh, yikes. Did they even like try? Did they watch, did they read anything? Did they study him at all before they sought to portray him? Like that's not at all how he acts. You know, if somebody were to get some footage of us, you know, with our spouse and when we're not having a good day or our children when they're being difficult or uh, other church family members when they don't do exactly what we want them to or they don't say hi to us in the foyer. Do we portray Jesus in those moments? Do we act like Him in and out of season? We wonder why we're not more like Jesus 
when we have very little exposure to him on a regular basis. Like if you watch the process of some of those actors, I mean, they, they take like a year of their life and they put everything they have into being that person. And if you look at it on the flip side, what do they have to do? They have to like mentally condition themselves to get out of that character, to get out of that role. Like it takes significant effort to remove themselves from that character. How much would it take us to remove our thoughts from Jesus' thoughts? Hopefully you've gone so far you, you can't ever get back that it permanently is just a part of who you are because you spend so much of your time, so much effort, so much study, so much conversation becoming more and more and more like Jesus to the point where you get where I can't ever go back. I could never not be like Jesus. That he's always going to shine through in my actions, in my words, in the way that I see the world, in the way that I interact with people. I can't help it. I'm, that, that's who I am now. I don't even know how to be the old me. I couldn't be him if I tried. Some of us have. We've tried to be the old us. And it's gross, and it's blah, and it's no more fun, and it's not enjoyable. Why? You started to become like Jesus. You see the world like him now. That's a beautiful thing to have, to know that you can't ever go back. But don't ever stop. Our whole life should be wrapped up in, in this goal of emulating Jesus, being more like him at all times, that we would sound like him, that we would look like him, that we would love like him, that when people saw us, they wouldn't see us anymore. They would see the person we're emulating, seeking to portray we have access to a lot of material that clearly explains the characteristics and the personality of our God so we can learn to do what Paul is saying, learning to know our Creator and become like Him. So you can't become like Him unless you learn to know Him. I think too often we're looking for that quick fix to becoming more like Jesus and forcing this renewing that verse 10 is talking about. I've had multiple conversations with people. It's like, well, I just want to be like Jesus now. This is really difficult. How can I make it happen this week? Well, you can spend more time in His Word this week, but it's a slow process. Becoming like somebody so drastically different from your old self, man, there's no quick fix. I remember when I went to college, I thought, this is my time. Like, I'm going two and a half hours away from home. Nobody knows me at this college. I can be a totally different person if I want. I can change the way people look at me. What happened? I became the same exact person. It's really hard to change who you are in like a day. But over time, you know, now, like last night, spending some time with my high school people from 20 years ago. I haven't seen most of them in 20 years. And it's like, you've changed a lot. Well, thank you. Praise the Lord. I'm a whole lot different than the kid you knew who you couldn't bring around your parents because I couldn't stop cursing. That was me. I'm a whole lot different person. I had one person look at me like sideways, like, you are a pastor of a church. And I was like, I love that. I love that that confuses you and that confounds you. You know, you're just, you have no idea what to say to that because that tells me that Jesus has taken me on a long journey. And man, I have a longer way to go than, than what I've already traveled. But that should be us. If we come across somebody from our old life, if we uh, cross paths with somebody from even just a few years ago, it should be like, wow, there's something very different about you. You, you. you don't seem like the old you. 
Well, praise the Lord, because I'm not. I've spent my life trying to emulate someone else. And the fact that he's shining through more than I, my personality now, that's a good thing. But it's a slow, everyday process. It wasn't like, well, January of 2021, I became like Jesus. Like, that's not how it went. It was every day putting to death things that were sinful and earthly lurking within me, putting to death my impatience, putting to death parts of my arrogance, and putting to death all these things that I know are there and that God is trying to root out and the Holy Spirit is working in my life through slowly and thinking like, man, I'm never going to get rid of this. Ah, oh, man, I'm not making any progress. And then someone acknowledges that they're seeing God do that work in our life. It's a, it's a beautiful and awesome thing. Nothing else should matter more to us than daily becoming more like Jesus. As Paul points out in verse 11, in this new life, it doesn't matter if you are a Jew or a Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbaric, uncivilized, slave or free, Christ is all that matters and He lives in all of us. Christ is all that matters. Wouldn't it be nice to say that and actually mean it? That we could say, Jesus is all that matters to me. He matters the most, and He is the thing that my life revolves around. And there's nothing else. And, you know, as we were talking this morning in our Sunday school class and saying, like, what, what would we we'd be willing to give up for Jesus? What would we be willing to sacrifice for him to say that uh, my world does not revolve around my kids? To say, I would give him up for Jesus if he asked. That's a tough one for me. There's a lot of other things. Like, I don't care about my house. I don't care about my car. I don't care about a lot of the other things. Even my job here. I love it, but it doesn't, my life doesn't revolve around it. But then I look at Killian, and I look at Kiar, and it's like, man, that'd be hard. That's difficult. And making sure they don't ever become an idol. That's tough to actually be able to say Jesus is all that matters. Paul's also here, he's tearing down the walls that people put up to classify people and which just create divisions among us. If you read a lot of Paul's writings, he spends a lot of time pushing the believers toward a place of unity and trying to point out how often and in how many ways the enemy tries to create divisions among us. He is really, really good at it. And, and this is one of the ways, by creating these labels and creating these divisions. And, and their time, it was a very real thing that you had slaves in the church and you had people that were considered barbaric and you had Jews and you had Gentiles and you had pagans and you had Greeks and you had all of these labels that created divisions. And it'd be like, well, it's really strange to see this labeled person interacting with this labeled person and this one having this one in their home and and it just made it harder to be unified. And, And in a positive way, we've gotten rid of a lot of those labels but we can sometimes replace them with other labels and we create more division through them. What Paul is saying here is it doesn't matter what else you identify with. Whatever it is, it comes secondary to Christ. Christ is all that matters. He is the unifying factor. And I was actually talking with an an elder from the Morgantown Church, and we were just talking about this, like this beautiful thing that, uh, you know, in church, you interact with some people, and and you become friends with them, and and you have this community with people. You're like, man, there is literally one thing we have in common, 
and that's Jesus, because we have nothing else in common, and yet we can worship together, and we can develop this friendship and, and this relationship as, as community, all based around this one thing we have in common, is that, and that is Jesus. It's the same Christ who lives us, in us all and works through us all. He is that unifying factor. Verse 12 says, Since God chose you to be the holy people He loves, you must clothe yourselves with tender-hearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Just a few verses ago, Paul encouraged us to put on our new nature. He, he uses this clothing analogy. And I, I think it's very fascinating that he uses this analogy because he's putting off this, stripping off that. Um, it's almost like this, this getting dressed mentality. And if you understood their culture, uh, even baptism had uh, this clothing uh, metaphor because they would go down into what they used as like a baptismal that was covered. And they would wash themselves. They would remove all of the old dirty clothes. They'd wash themselves. They'd put on the new white linens and they'd walk out. And it was this purifying ceremony, this thing that showed like, now this person has shed the old and the impure and the dirty and they've put on the new. Um, and so this was very vivid imagery for the people uh, of this time. And so they would understand this stripping off and putting on that the old stuff stayed there. It wouldn't make any sense to grab all that old dirty clothes and carry it up with you in your brand new clean linens. Like that's not how it worked. We left it there. And we came up out dressed differently, looking differently, hopefully smelling differently. Everything changed when we came up and out. Here, Paul continues that analogy by encouraging us what to be clothed with, that there is this new clothing to put on. And what does that look like? Well, the first one he brings up is tender-hearted mercy. Now, I'm sure when you all read that, you have a perfectly clear definition of tender-hearted mercy, right? Right? How is it different from regular mercy? Yeah, me either. I read this and I was like, I, I have no idea what that means. What is tender-hearted mercy? I know what it means to have a tender heart. And I know what it means to be merciful. But when you put these two together, what does it mean? Best definition I can give you is a deep sensitivity to the needs and the sorrow of others. So it's not just an uh, acknowledgement of it. Um, oh, wow, you look sad but a deep sensitivity to it, to both acknowledge and, and, and interact with people in a way um, that sees the needs and sorrows of others and responds well to that. I, I guarantee you, you, we probably all know someone, we'd say, yeah, that person exemplifies tenderhearted mercy. They can't pass a person in deep need without, like, empathizing and feeling that need and wanting to engage that need in like a meaningful way. That's tender-hearted mercy. We're told to clothe ourselves with this. This should be part of our attire. Uh, we uh, also see the imagery of the, um, the armor of God used, things that we put on that take an active role on, of putting on armor and, and, and strapping it down and doing the intentional work of putting it on. Well, here is uh, not necessarily armor, but clothing, uh, something that should be donned upon us at all times. Um, so the first one's tenderhearted mercy. And then the next four are interesting because they do relate toward one another. And, and so what Paul is saying here is, is approach every situation 
with tender-hearted mercy, that you would have a deep sensitivity to the needs and sorrows of others. And then he adds kindness. Now, kindness and humility go together in this, and gentleness and patience go together in this. So, kindness is showing a Christ-like attitude to others, whereas humility is showing a Christ-like attitude toward ourselves. So, kindness is toward others, and while humility is toward ourselves. Kindness is focusing more on others, while humility is focusing less on ourselves. Okay, so kindness and humility kind of go together. And then gentleness and patience, what it does is it puts those other two, it puts kindness and humility into practice, but in different ways. Gentleness is a kind and humble approach, approach toward others. We approach them through a spirit of kindness and humility, whereas patience is a kind and humble response toward others. So I just think this is very fascinating, this list of of attributes we're to put on, because it teaches us and instructs us how to interact with other people and with ourselves. Kindness and humility, obviously, being kindness toward others is, is more focused on others. Humility looks at ourselves and considers ourselves less uh, important, less righteous, less glorious than we generally tend to think of ourselves. And then when we take kindness and humility and we begin to put them into practice, uh, when we approach people, it is gentleness. But when we respond to people, because here's the reality, if you haven't figured this out yet, sometimes people don't act very well. Uh, And we're told to both approach them in a certain way, but also to respond to them. One of the things that uh, bothers me when someone says uh, certain terminology is, well, they made me angry. Uh, Nope. They did something, and you chose to respond in anger. No one can make you feel a certain emotion. Now, they can act in a way that it's very likely you're going to respond in a very specific way, uh, but we have the choice. And as we grow in these and as we clothe ourselves in these uh, more and more and more, I don't know if you've ever seen somebody who uh, has walked with the Lord for a long time and, and someone can really act like an absolute fool. And what happens? They can remain calm. They can remain firm, but calm. Why? Because they've adopted this patient mentality. They've taken kindness and humility, and they've applied it to their response to that person. And they can also, when you see people who've walked with Jesus and they clothe themselves with these things, they can approach people who it's like, man, I, I wouldn't know the first way to approach that person in their messiness and, and that, that extraordinarily difficult person the way that they approach them with the humility and the kindness, like it blows my mind. That's somebody who has learned to clothe themselves in these things daily on a regular basis. I can tell you, the first church I ever worked in um, was really the first time I regularly wore a suit and tie. Uh, And if you've ever tried to tie a tie, it's like origami, so uh, it was very difficult for me at first. Um, wasn't used to it, wasn't accustomed to it. And what happened? The, the longer I did that every day, all of a sudden I could tie it without looking at it. And then I could you know, tie it while doing other things and thinking about other things. And it became easier and easier to clothe myself with this 
previously very difficult process. And kindness and humility are no different. At first, man, they're really difficult. If you've ever tried to apply kindness or humility to a situation that you haven't done it before, whether that's a family member or a church situation, it's like, that was difficult and I did not do that well. But then the longer we do it, the easier it is to figure out the intricacies of it and to apply it to the situation and and to clothe ourselves in that way, even when it's difficult. I don't know if you've ever tried to dress yourself in the dark. Um, If you try to put on something new that you're not comfortable with, it's probably going to be pretty difficult to get it right. But if you're trying to put on your favorite shirt and your favorite pair of jeans or sweatpants or something, then you know exactly because you know, well, the tag goes on the left side, so I know it's it's sitting out right this way, and I don't even need to see it because I know what I'm doing. If we learn how to clothe ourselves with these on a regular basis, when the night is dark, when things are ugly, when the situation is bad, when your blood pressure is up and emotions are high, you will find it easier to clothe yourself in this way because you've made it a practice. And you shouldn't be surprised if when your blood pressure is up and whether it's your spouse, your, your neighbor, your, your family member, uh, and, or a coworker, and they're acting like a fool in front of you and you're like, you know what? I'm going to choose this moment to put on kindness and humility. And you fail miserably. You shouldn't wonder why if you're not in a regular practice of doing it, uh, why you kind of fail and put your leg through the armhole of it. It's just going to happen. But if we learn to do it each and every day, slowly through this process of getting to know God and becoming more like Him, man, God can put us in situations and, and we can thrive through the power of the Holy Spirit in these things. The third list of these five qualities or actions uh, in chapter 3 is, is no accident. It's not like it was an accident or on Paul's or God's uh, part that there are three lists of five in this one chapter. It's an obvious pattern that uh, Paul is trying to show us and, and, and put forward for us. So just think for a moment how different this list is than the previous lists. Previous lists of five, sexual immorality impurity, lust, evil desires, covetousness, anger, rage, malicious behavior, slander, dirty language. And we come to the third list, tender-hearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. If we're honest with ourselves, which of these three lists do we more closely resemble? Which attributes would others use to describe us? If your coworkers or your family members or your spouse were to write out your list of five, given these 15 options, would their first one be, oh, tender-hearted mercy, for sure. Humility, definitely. Kindness, oh, for sure. Patience, absolutely. Or would it be some of the other things? And if we're honest with ourselves, which of these 15 attributes would we put on our list, uh, the top of our list? If we're able to put on the qualities in the third list, it makes it a whole lot easier to follow Paul's encouragement in the following verses, like verse 13. He says, make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember, The Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. Forgiveness. Man, this is a tricky word. It's easy to understand. 
But man, can it be difficult to put into practice because it is so easy to say, I forgive you, but so much more difficult to really authentically forgive. Do you remember the second list of five in this chapter was all about anger? And as we talked about it, the supply lines of that list was what? Unforgiveness. All the sins of anger that are listed in that list of five, they all come from a heart of unforgiveness. And if we're able to put in the qualities of tender-hearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, we will find it much easier to make allowance for each other's faults and forgive them truly and authentically, especially if we're also following Paul's previous encouragement to not lie to one another, because we'll be honest about our faults. We'll be honest that, yeah, listen, I, I hear what you're saying, but it's no more messed up than me, you know, or we can sit with a couple who's struggling and be like, yeah, you guys have a lot of problems, but not more than we have. We have problems too. We all struggle. We all have these issues that are in our lives, and when we're honest with each other, when we, when we, then we can put on these things, and we can make allowance for each other's faults. Because we're going to be honest about us and our faults, we'll find it much more difficult to be judgmental in the face of others' faults. It's pretty hard to kind of lay out your messiness, and when someone else shares it, go, ooh, you're messed up. Oh, well, you're just not as good a Christian as me. It's like, well, hold on, hold on. Pump the brakes there. I know how messed up you are. And that's true community, when we can share uh, and feel comfortable sharing because we know I'm a messed up person talking to a messed up person trying to get closer to Jesus. That's who we are. That's what we're doing. And hopefully, that's why we're here. If you're here because you're so righteous that God you know, is just blessed to have you as part of his church family, uh, you might need some work. But if you're here because you want to grow closer to him and the best way to do that is through community, then that's, you're in the right place. We say our vision statement not as often as I like, uh, but hopefully you know what our, our vision is here. It's to be a family where everyone can know, experience, and be empowered to ignite the love of Christ. That's who we are. That's our vision, that we would be a church that exemplifies that in everything we do, that you would not just know the love of Christ, but you would experience it. And that you wouldn't stop there, but you would be empowered to ignite that in your life and in others' lives. And the only way to do that is through community. We cannot do that as a solo practitioner. We can't do that on an island. God called the church to be a community. That's what church literally means, is an assembly of people. That we would come together in, in unity. And, and as we'll talk about next week... It's about being bound together in love for one another, being bound together because of the love of Christ and because of our love for each other. And I encourage you, uh, hopefully, again, re be reading Colossians chapter 3 and allow some of this to sink in even before you come in next week as you think about what would it look like to be transparent with my church community? What would it look like to grab a couple guys or a couple women and to try to meet maybe every other week or once a month even, and we just sit and we talk and we share what God's doing in our life, and we share uh, what God is trying to root out in our life and, and ask 
for advice from some of the, uh, the people around the table and say, hey, this is where I'm at. This is what I'm struggling with. This is what God's doing in my life. Uh, you guys any, got any encouragement for me? You got anything for it? And watch what happens as we begin to, to dig into each other's lives and have that, that level of transparency and, and intimacy together as a family. It can only be a beautiful thing. And I, and I hope and pray that we would be a church where we can say, yeah, here at New Boys Alliance, we have perfect harmony because we love each other. We accept each other for their faults that we have, and we don't allow each other to just stay there. I, I love that we would develop this mentality that it's okay not to be okay, but it's not okay to stay there. That we would accept people who are not okay, and we would journey with them, not just point them in the right direction, but journey with them as they walk toward Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that you walk with us. God, I thank you that you never just point us in a direction and send us off on our own. But Holy Spirit, you've been placed inside of each and every one of us. And, and as you continue to root out things in our life that which don't belong, as you continue to point out uh, incongruent behaviors and thought processes and, and parts of us which just don't belong in your kingdom, that you also enable us and give us the power uh, to get those things removed from our life and to clothe ourselves with these positive uh, things, uh, these attributes of you. And God, I thank you that uh, you've created us to be people in community. I thank you for the awesome community we have here at Dubois Alliance Church, God. And I, I thank you that it continues to grow and our, and our desire to grow together uh, also grows each and every day. Lord, I pray that you would enable us to, through humility and kindness, both approach one another and respond to each other and that we would have a church that could weather any storm because of our closeness toward each other, the unity and the perfect harmony that you seek for us. It is possible or else you wouldn't encourage us to it. And so, Lord, I pray that we would be a family who would go after it with everything that we have. We would let nothing get in the way of us being unified under you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen. Happy Father's Day and have a blessed Sunday.